Well, good evening, brothers and sisters. It's an absolute joy to be with you. And I want to invite you with real excitement to turn to the book of Esther tonight. And let me just say what is probably extremely obvious to say, but isn't it good to worship together? It's a gift. I want to say to those who are joining us online and utilizing the worship folder, it is great to be with you as you worship at home and utilize this worship folder. That's going to continue to be available to you as a church family. And to those of us who have gathered here physically in the physical gathering, uh, we are coming out of quarantine. This is week two of our post-quarantine gathering, and we're just grateful and we're thankful. And I wanted to say thankful for you uh, I just want to encourage you in a couple things, then we're going to jump down into the text. I do want to remind you, I know it's weird, and I know you say, I've never had to RSVP for church, but you got to keep RSVPing. That's really important. Now, I heard Ed is going to be scalping tickets if you can't find any. Maybe you can talk to Ed Leeson about that, but it's really, really important as we pursue the gathering and safety that you continue to RSVP every week. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for spreading out and honoring social distancing. Thank you for the, the air hugs that they're called and the, the elbows, maybe a foot tap, whatever. But we just want to continue to pursue safety so that we can continue to meet together and we can uh, just honor one another in that. So thank you for how you've done that. Thank you for signing up on a Saturday night. Uh, it's one thing to sign up for a Saturday night service when it's raining on Wednesday morning, right? Then Saturday evening gets here and it's beautiful, it's time to go, but you're here tonight and we're grateful that we get to walk through God's word together. So, book of Esther, go ahead and find your place there, chapter one of this great Old Testament book. I wanna, I wanna kinda start with this. I wanna set up the book of Esther, what we're gonna be talking about tonight. And we'll do it this way, whether it's in a global pandemic like what we're currently in, whether it's a major life decision or whether it's simply the challenges of everyday life, there is a big truth that you find in Scripture from the book of Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation. And we're going to, I'm going to read this to you from Ephesians chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read a verse. We're going to start there, and that's going to launch us into the book of Esther. So here's what Paul says, the Apostle Paul, not guitarist Paul that was up here, you say, that looked vaguely like Pastor Paul on the guitar. No, it wasn't. So, just kidding, that was Pastor Paul, one of those multi-talented guys up here. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus in chapter 1, he says this, a great truth for us. He says in verse 3, then into verse 11, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul, as he's laying out God's plan of redemption that began in eternity past, says this about God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who works all things together, verse 11, according to the counsel of his will. That is a bedrock truth for the people of God to hang on to. Now, we're going to start with the big truth that comes out of that verse and then hold that out as we walk through the book of Esther. So here's your big truth tonight flowing right out of that verse in Ephesians is this. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
God is never surprised. God is never caught off guard. God is never trying to make up for a bad decision he made the year prior. God is proactively working all things according to the counsel of his perfect, good, righteous will. Aren't you glad? What does that look like? <laughs> what does that look like as God weaves that in and out of the affairs of our daily lives? I want you to look in the book of Esther because you're going to see this big truth played out in the book of Esther. Esther chapter 1. Let me give you a couple statements that are just a background. I hope you were able to read through the book of Esther. Incredible chapters of this great story. I want to remind you the book of Esther is set during the period of exile. God's people are out of the land of promise. The mass majority of God's people are in exile. They've been driven out. The majority are living in an area called Persia. That's modern day Iran in that area of the Middle East. Some of the exiles have returned to Jerusalem, but many remain there in Persia. There's an entire community of Jews that are there in Persia, Susa, the capital. Much of what you're going to hear in Esther, Esther deals with that community there in Susa. Second thing I want you to know about the book of Esther before we jump into it tonight is this. It's one of only two books in the Bible that God is never mentioned by name. You're reading through the book of Esther and you say, I can't even find the name of the Lord. I can't find anything about prayer. There's no reference to scripture. And that is an incredible tool by the author of this book to subtly for us to be on the search. Even though God is not named in the book, he is in absolute control of every event you read in the book of Esther. So you're to read it and continue to ask the question, God, what are you doing either behind the scenes or out front? God, what are you doing in this story? Because we know you're carrying out all things according to the counsel of your will. What does it look like, God, for you to act sovereignly and with great providence in the lives of your people? You see that in the book of Esther. Now, if you read the book of Esther, you know there's a little phrase that's very apt. It's not in the book, but I'm going to use it a lot. It's this. It just so happened. It just so happened. And you see that over and over. You see these things that seem to just so happen in the story of Esther. We know that it doesn't just so happen. It's the hand of Almighty God carrying out his purposes in the lives of his people. Amen. So you see that in the book of Esther. Now, what does it look like for God to carry out the purposes according to the counsel of his will? What does it look like? Let's begin Esther chapter 1, verse 1 together. The Bible says this. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, my kids love that name. They said that sounds like a dinosaur or something. This is the king, king of Persia. He is, verse 1, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Stop right there. I want you to understand the history that Esther is written in. The Persian Empire was vast. In fact, it's one of the largest empires in the history of all the world. This Ahasuerus that's mentioned here is known by another name, Xerxes. That's his Greek name. This is his English name. His father was a man named King Darius. 
so you can just get your timeline. Darius was the guy, his dad, that threw Daniel into the lion's den. That's King Darius. Now, some things about King Ahasuerus. One is he loved warfare. If you know anything about history during this time, it's this Persian empire that's led by Xerxes. They had one of the largest armies in the history of the world. Their arch rival during this time was Greece. So if you know anything about this period, there were some really famous battles that happened between Persia and between Greece. Battle of Marathon, maybe you've heard of that. We've used that name today. The Battle of Thermopylae. Anybody ever seen the movie 300? It's a, real, it's a guy's movie about these 300 Spartans that fought against the Persians. That was King Xerxes right here in the book of Esther. So he loved warfare. Secondly, he loved parties. You're going to see all kinds of banquets take place here in the book of Esther. The guy loved parties and banquets. So as the book opens, he's having a party. Now, the party lasts, imagine this, 180 days. So he's displaying all of his military might of Persia. And something else that's going on at this time, they're strategizing for their military, uh, what's going to happen over the next four years with the nation of Greece. So that's what's going on over these 180 days. Come to verse 10. On the, following the 180-day pomp and circumstance, all that was going on, then they had another seven-day party. Now, here's where things get really interesting. During this seven-day party that follows this initial 180-day event, uh, King Xerxes asks something of his queen, Vashti. You read about this beginning in verse 10. So he's having this big party. It's been an incredible six months for this king. Everything's going well. And he asked for his queen to be brought out. You see that in verse 10 and verse 11. Queen Vashti or Vashti. Depends on if you're from northern Persia or southern Persia. If it's Vashti or Vashti. If you're redneck southern Persia, it's Vashti. If you're from the north, it's Vashti. You, you get the idea. So King Xerxes says this, he says, hey, go get my queen. And I want you to bring my queen out in front of all my dinner guests. And I want them to see her beauty and how incredible she is. It's an act of pride from King Xerxes, verse 11, or moving on, verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. After this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. His queen said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be your pawn. Well, the king's enraged. He's insulted. He feels disrespected. So basically, his queen, Vashti, is deposed by King Xerxes. She's no longer queen. Now, at this point, the book of Esther takes a, about a four-year hiatus. Four years from when we go to the end of chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 2. What's going on there in that four years? War with Greece. So Xerxes goes off, then he comes back. He's defeated very severely. He comes back to Persia. Things are not going well. That's when you pick it up in verse 2, it's been, or chapter 2. Four years since what we just read in chapter 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus has abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done. Verse 2, the counselors around him, and you're going to hear a lot of counsel during this book, you, you see the value of good counsel and you see the danger of bad counsel. He's going to get some really poor counsel here. It's just counsel, either poor or bad, but it works out for God's purposes. But 
Verse two says, then the king's young men who attended him said, let, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Here's what you ought to do, King Xerxes. You ought to have this big kingdom-wide beauty pageant. You need a queen. You've had a rough four years, King Xerxes. We suggest you have this pageant, go throughout all the land, bring in a queen. So that's what happens. At that point, you're introduced in the story of Esther to two key characters, a man named Mordecai and a woman named Hadassah or Esther. Beginning in verse 5 of chapter 2, it says, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemi, son of Kish. He was a Benjamite. Now, there's no detail in the Bible that's there by happenstance. This guy, Mordecai, is one, he's an exiled Jew. He evidently has been born there in Persia. It says he was a descendant of Kish, a descendant of Benjamin. That's very important in the story. If you remember, we just read 1 Samuel a few months ago. There's a chapter 15 where Saul, the king, is a descendant from Kish, a Benjamite. Now hold that, in, just keep that in mind. That'll come back in a minute. Then you keep on going down to verse 7. He, Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. You're introduced to Esther. Who is she? Well, the daughter of his uncle. I'm in chapter 2, verse 7. For she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure. She was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. It's very important in the story. Who is Esther? Esther is an orphaned Jewish girl adopted by this guy Mordecai living in exile in Persia. That's who Esther is. Now keep going. So what happens? Well, as it is or as it so happened, Esther enters the beauty pageant, so to speak. From thousands of women all over the kingdom, uh, she makes it to the top 400 and these women who, these top 400, they, they go through a year of beauty treatment, a year of primping. All, I couldn't imagine what goes on in that year. And all the guys say, man, I thought it took my wife a long time to get ready. They're primped for a year to get ready to go in before the king. And this king is going to choose, if you will, from these women who he wants to be his queen. Esther is selected and you can go ahead and read all the details for yourself. You'll find that in chapter 2, verse 17 says, The king, Xerxes, loved Esther more than all the women. She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Verse 20. Oh, by the way, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people. So it's very important that the king just so happens from all the women of Persia to select an orphaned Jewish girl to be his queen. It just so happened. Proverbs 21.1 says this, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. God is orchestrating all these affairs to carry out his perfect will. So it continues on, some months pass, and it turns back, the scene turns back to Mordecai. 
Mordecai's outside the king's palace. He's at the king's gate, if you will. He's very interested, I'm, a, I'm sure, of what's going on inside the palace with his adopted daughter, Esther. Something very important happens, chapter 2, verse 21. It says, in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thin and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Xerxes or Ahasuerus. And this became known to the knowledge of Mordecai. So Mordecai's hanging out at the gate. He's outside the king's palace. He just so happens to overhear this conversation between these two guys. And they're plotting to kill the king. Mordecai reports it to Esther. Esther reports it to King Xerxes. These guys, the plot is found out to be true. These guys are hanged on the gallows. End of verse 23. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Somebody wrote down this event that happened in the life of Mordecai. It just so happened Mordecai the Jew uncovers a plot to kill the king. And it's written down in the records of the king. We'll come back to that. Now, five years pass. Queen Esther's being the queen. Mordecai's hanging out at the king's palace. All these things are taking place. Then you come to chapter 3 and verse 1, and you're going to be introduced to the bad guy, the villain. Every good story has a villain. You're going to be introduced to a man named Haman. Chapter 3, verse 1 says this. After these things, King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, promoted Haman the Agagite. Now, again, one of these little phrases you just read over in your Bible, the word Agagite is very important because, remember Mordecai? Mordecai is a Jew who is a descendant of Benjamin, of Kish. Haman is a descendant of a man named Agag or the Agagites. All the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, there's a war and a conflict between the Amalekites, and the Amalekites are battling against the Israelites. The Amalekite king is a man named Agag. Yep. Saul is called to kill Agag. He doesn't. Samuel comes and kills him. There's this hostility between the Amalekites and the Israelites that's still raging a thousand years later. It just so happens you've got Mordecai, a descendant of Kish and Benjamin, and you've got Haman, a descendant of Agag, right here together in this story. It just so happens. Verse 1. Haman is advanced and set on the throne of Xerxes. Basically, let's put it this way. Haman's put in second in command. So this enemy of the Jews is placed second in command over all of Persia. Verse 2. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down to him and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded, but Mordecai, end of verse 2, did not bow down or pay homage What's going on here? Haman's got a pride issue. We're going to see that later. Haman really likes for people to recognize who he is and how great he is. Haman comes out of the king's palace. He walks through the king's quarters. Everyone is ordered to bow down to Haman. Everyone bows down except Mordecai. And he stands out like a sore thumb. So Haman in his rage is infuriated, verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay, pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he dis this is huge. What's this? 
Agagite, a Malachite descendant, Israelite descendant are now at odds with one another. Haman in this position of authority thinks, all right, here's my chance to settle this thousand-year-old score with the Jewish people. Verse 6, but he, Haman, disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. He said, I'll show them. I'm not going to just kill Mordecai. I'm going to kill all of them. That's what's going on here in verse 6. Verse 6 of chapter 3, he says, he didn't want to just lay hands on Mordecai. So as they had made known to the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now listen, the story gets pretty intense here. It just so happened at this point in the story, a powerful world leader determines to exterminate the Jewish people. Seems like it's kind of on repeat throughout history, right? Happened in the book of Exodus, the Egyptians. It happens here in the kingdom of Persia. It's happened even in, in our generation, if you will, in the 40s, in the Third Reich. There's this pattern. And what you have to understand is what's going on here in chapter 3 is not just a human conflict. You have to step back and look at the cosmic significance of what's going on here. The enemy himself, Satan himself, is behind this plot to wipe out the Jewish people. Why? Because your enemy knows if he can wipe out the Jewish people, there will be no nation of Israel, there will be no Jewish Messiah, there will be no hope for redemption for the nations, and God will be made out to be a liar. So there's this cosmic battle going on in the book of Esther. It's not just about Esther. In fact, you'll see later, Esther's not even the hero of the book. So this cosmic battle, Haman says, I'm going to destroy not just Mordecai, I'm going to wipe out the entire Jewish people. Chapter 10, I'm sorry, verse 10 of chapter 3. So King Xerxes takes off his signet ring, gives it to Haman. End of verse 11, you do with them as seems good to you. All authority, in a sense, is given to this man Haman. Now, if you were to stop and drop in by time travel, at this point in the story of Esther, you're wringing your hands, your head is sweating, and you're thinking God's purposes have failed. Doesn't look good. And by the way, there will be situation after situation after situation in your life. If you were to take just the immediate context, you look around and you go, what in the world is God doing? Not here. Looks like it. But we know God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Even Haman. Even Haman. Now. How do the people of Persia respond to this? So imagine this order goes out through all the kingdom. This order goes out from Haman. It goes out from the king. All Jewish people living in the land of Persia must die. Chapter 3, verse 15. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king. And a decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And <laughs> this is so ironic. Listen. And the, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Why? Because the Jews have been there for over 140 years at this point. It's the neighbor next door named Joe who runs the coffee shop. He's a Jew? And there's an order now to kill him? That's what it was like. Susa was in confusion at this point. Why so much confusion? A couple things. You don't have to turn there. 
The book of Jeremiah that was written prior to the exile, God does two things about the exile that we're reading about here. Number one, he instructs the exiles, and then he makes a promise to the exiles, and it bears here. I just want you to know this really quick. Jeremiah chapter 29 says this, verse 4. God, before the exile ever happens, says this. He, makes, he gives instructions. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now remember, Babylon became Persia, same, same area. He says, verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Multiply there and do not decrease. Verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Susa, Babylon, Persia. Seek the welfare of the city and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. One of the reasons the city is in confusion because Susa, the welfare of Susa has improved because the Jewish people have been there. Promise of God. Then he says this. He makes a promise to the exiles. Jeremiah 29, 10 says, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and I will bring you back to this place. He says, I'm not going to leave you in exile forever. Even though it may seem like it right now, I'm not going to leave you there forever. Verse 11. Ready for it? Everybody's heard it. It's probably on your mirror. You've memorized it. Here's the context. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It's not just some broad promise. It's a specific promise to the exiled people of God that God is going to carry out his purpose and his promise, even though in the moment it looks nothing like it. I have my pro a plan and a purpose for you. Isn't that great? So Seuss I mean, and they're falling apart because this edict has come down for the extermination of the Jewish people. Well, Mordecai hears of the plot. Esther hears of the plot. It just so happens that sitting next to the king is Esther, who is a Jewish woman. And the king has no idea that he has signed the orders for the extermination of his own queen. Doesn't know that yet. It's going to come out. Chapter 4, verse 13, then Mordecai says to Esther. Now, chapter 4, there's a few verses here that if you haven't read Esther, man, I want you to know these verses. Mordecai realizes that he says, Esther, you've got to understand, see the purposes of God in all this. He says in verse 13, Mordecai communicating to Esther, he says, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape more than any of the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. You know why Mordecai says that? I think it's because Mordecai had read Jeremiah 29. He knows God's purposes are going to be carried out. But he says, Esther, you and your father's house may perish. Don't think you have safety just because you're living in the king's palace. Then he comes back and he says, verse 14, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. See your current circumstances in light of God's big purposes, Esther. There's a couple problems. Esther is there, but in that culture, no one, no one, not even the queen, can go into the king's court uninvited. You go into the king uninvited, he can say, off with your head. He can say whatever he wants, even the queen. 
So then Esther told Mordecai, verse 15 into verse 16, said, all right, I want you to gather all the Jews that are in Susa. I want you to hold a fast on my behalf. I don't want you to eat, drink for three days. I, my young women, will also fast. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the king. And these great words from the book of Esther. Many of you have heard these before. And she says, though it is against the law, if I perish, I perish. She says, I see this place that has been appointed for me by God for his ultimate purposes. And I'm going into the king. She does. You can read about that in chapter 4 on your own. The king loves Esther. He, sees, he has favor in his eyes for Esther. He extends the golden scepter. She's brought in. And the king says, Esther, what can I do for you? And Esther says this. She says, I, I, I want to have a banquet. I want, I want to have a party. It's kind of a gathering. I, I want you there, king, and I want Haman there. And remember, the king loves parties, so any idea for to have a banquet? He's like, sure, let's have a banquet. So she says, I want to have it that night. So that night, there's the king there, and Haman's there, and the king comes in and says, okay, what do you want? And Esther said, you know what? Here's what I want. I want you to come back tomorrow night. We're going to do this whole thing again. We don't know why she did that. She just chose to do that. So the next 24 hours are critical. The king, Haman, and Esther are going to gather again 24 hours from now. Critical 24 hours. Hang on. Verse 9 of chapter 4. So Haman leaves and says he went out that day joyful and glad of heart. He passes Mordecai and he's infuriated again because Mordecai doesn't bow down. He's walking out because he's been in the presence of the king and he's been with the queen and he's boastful and he's arrogant. He goes to his own house and he says, listen, you know how important I am in this kingdom? Man, I was just with the queen. I was just with the king. Man, he's just rehearsing all of his greatness and how great he is. And he said, but this guy, Mordecai, just drives me crazy. And he gets some bad counsel by those around him. And they say, here's what you ought to do. You ought to erect a gallows outside. A gallows is not like a noose. It's this 75-foot tall stake that people were impaled on. And they said, you ought to erect a gallows and you ought to hang Mordecai on it. He says, you know what? I think that's a good idea. Verse chapter 4, verse 14, this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Haman builds these gallows. Now stay with me. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 23 says this. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Haman represents Thick pride. And you're going to see God bring this man low. Same 24-hour period. So he wrecks these gallows. Same night. Xerxes is in his bed. The king, Ahasuerus, he can't sleep. Divine insomnia. So he says, I don't have Facebook. I don't have anything to waste time on. What am I going to do? So he says, go get me the court records of the king. And somebody read some stories to me about the history of Persia. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of history in these books. And they bring these books and they begin to read. And this is incredible. Chapter 6, it says this in verse 2. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh. In other words, of all the stories, they begin to read the story of how Mordecai had saved the king's life. It just so happened. And the king says, hey, verse 3. Has anybody honored this guy? What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Has this guy been properly honored for saving the king? 
Somebody comes in in verse 3 and says, nothing has been done for him. Next morning comes, king gets up, all this is on his mind, getting ready for the banquet that night with Esther, and he says, he's in his court, and guess who shows up? Haman, bright and early, Haman's ready for his big day, he's already been insulted by Mordecai, but he comes in, king sees him, says, bring Haman in, verse 6 of chapter 6. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, this is where it gets incredible, chapter 6 is an amazing turn of events from the hand of the Lord. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, Haman, what honor should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Hey, Haman, if I wanted to show great honor to somebody, what do you think I ought to do for him? Haman thinks, it's going to be a good day for me, boys. It's going to be a good day. And Haman says to himself, verse 6, in other words, he's talking in his own mind about his own greatness. Pride always, pride always deceives by this self-talk that's not based in reality or based on truth. He says, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? He's got to be talking about me. Verse 10, actually after verse 6, so Haman says, here's what you ought to do for this guy. This man you want to honor, I think you ought to give him a royal robe. You ought to get him a really nice horse that you've ridden on, king. You ought to put a crown on his head. Somebody ought to lead him around the city on this horse, shouting how great this guy is. I think that'd be awesome. I think that's what you ought to do for the guy you want to honor. Thinking it's him, verse 10, the king says to Haman, hurry, take the robe, take the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. It's not the way Haman planned the day. So for the next few hours, Haman, the one who wants to exterminate the Jews, is walking around with a horse throughout Susa with a Jew on his back proclaiming how good and how great and how wonderful Mordecai is. It's just the low of the low for this man, Haman. Proverbs 29, 23, again, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. So he comes back, he's had this horrible day, it's time for the banquet, he's all excited, he gets to hang out, at least he gets to hang out with Esther and the king. So he comes back into the banquet chamber where they're having this banquet, chapter 7, verse 1. I know this is a lot of details, but it's about to wrap up. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. It's time for banquet number 2. They just had the one last night, it's time for number 2. And the king says to Esther again, Esther... What do you want? What is your wish? To, to half the kingdom shall be given to you. I asked you last night. You weren't ready to tell me. Tell me tonight. What is it you want? Verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered and says to the king, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. And the king says, Your life? What are you talking about? Verse 4. For we have been sold. I and my people to be destroyed and to be killed and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affection. Our affliction is not compared to people, the loss of the king. I wouldn't even have bothered you with it. We've been sold out. Somebody has tricked you to kill my people, the Jews, and to kill me. The king is furious. Verse 6, he comes back, to, or verse 5 says, Then King Ahasuerus says to Esther, Who is it? Who has done this? Verse 6, and Esther says, Haman's sitting there. He's already had a really bad day. And she says, 
a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. It's pretty incredible what 24 hours can mean in someone's life, right? God works all things together according to the counsel of his will. If you dropped in at different moments in the book of Esther, you would have thought, God, things are out of control. The Jews are going to be exterminated. The, the enemy is winning. Things look bleak. But now we have the advantage of looking hundreds of years after and see this story of how God, even though not mentioned directly in the book of Esther, is sovereignly orchestrating all things according to the counsel of his will. That's what it looks like. King Xerxes loses it here. He goes away. He comes back in uh, to the room. Haman has decided he's going to plead for mercy. He's literally at the feet of Esther holding onto her feet. The king walks in and goes, are you going Are you going to do something like this even with me here to the queen? He says, out with this guy. And he takes Haman, takes him out to in front of his own home, and he hangs him on the gallows that he had erected for Mordecai the Jew to be hung on. This is an incredible story. Pride will bring a man low, but he who walks in humility will be exalted by the Lord. Now, what are we going to do with this? I'm going to give you a big truth, and I'm going to give you two big ideas, and then we together are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together as a church. Big truth is this. God works all things according to the counsel of his will, even when he is unnamed and God appears to be apparently silent. He is purposefully he is sovereignly, he is graciously, and he is lovingly working all things according to the counsel of his will. Aren't you glad? It's all over the book of Esther. And there are a couple of big ideas really quick that come out of this. The team's going to come on up and just begin to play. And we're, we're going to walk through these very quickly and then prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Two big ideas for you that flow out of this that I think are helpful from the book of Esther. Number one is this. In response to what we've read, in response to this incredible story, big idea number one is this. We live hopeful because his, God's promises, are sure. Brothers and sisters, we live hopeful. The, the, the book of Esther is to produce Hope, not a maybe, but a certainty, regardless of our circumstances, because our God keeps his promises. The book of Esther, the first ones to read the book of Esther were these exiles who were either still in exile or had been taken back to Jerusalem and everything looked disastrous. And they were given this book of Esther and they were to read it and to see, wait a minute, even when everything looks like it's crumbling and falling apart, there's hope because our God keeps his promises. Big idea number two is this. We can live boldly. We can live boldly. You see this bold obedience here because God's authority is absolute. To the exiles and to us, they were used by God, but they acted in boldness to deliver their people. Mordecai and Esther, they step out in boldness. For us, we can walk in bold obedience knowing that every power, place, person, listen, that we will encounter on every day of our lives is under the authority of King Jesus. 
All of it. We can live hopeful. We can live boldly. Now, here's what we're going to do as a church. We're going to prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, I want to make a connection for you. The rest of the story of Esther, what happens is there was a day fixed that the Jews were to be exterminated. That day came. The Bible says that Xerxes had written another order, and the Jews were able to find deliverance and defend themselves, and it was an incredible battle, but they were able to withstand their enemies, and there was deliverance for the Jews. That day was determined by Haman by the casting of lots. It was the rolling of this dice, and they cast this lots, and they determined that day. Those lots were called Pur. The Jews today still celebrate a feast called Purim, Purim, to celebrate what happened as a result of the book of Esther. They celebrate that every year to celebrate their deliverance. Now watch this. The Lord has given the church a celebration that we are to observe on a regular basis, not because it's just deliverance from a temple, a temporal, a temporal enemy. We have deliverance from our eternal enemy. We have deliverance through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ from sin, from hell, from death. And he has given us the Lord's Supper as a church to come together. So good to be able to come together and worship and celebrate the Lord's Supper.